Welcome to episode 17 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Cece Chapman. <laughs> we are recording in a cold, dark house in a cold, dark America, trying to distract ourselves from impending doom with a conversation about some movies we caught at New Orleans Film Fest over a month ago. We've been putting off this as long as we possibly could, and now we're forgetting everything that we've seen, so it's probably time to record it before it's all gone to the wind. Before we get into uh, that particular conversation, though, uh, I just wanted to ask you, what have you seen since the last time we recorded? Uh, Well, I saw something that I skipped seeing at the New Orleans Film Fest because I knew it was going to be opening here fairly soon. Uh, So I saw Moonlight, which was amazing. And I also saw uh, Joshi. Joshi, that's right, which came out earlier this year or last year, maybe. Yeah, Joshi's streaming right now. I think yeah. it's about to be hit Hulu too. So yeah, so it's it's definitely on what Netflix right now. I'm not sure. I think it's uh, you pay pay for it on Amazon right now, but okay, it's, it's about yeah, to be, it's free, about on to be on, free on Hulu. What'd you think of Moonlight? I thought it was really beautiful. I identified with a lot of the scenes in the movie as I didn't really always have the greatest childhood so like the scene where he is uh our main character who at this point is known as little uh is trying to take a bath and he's like boiling water on the stove to dump in the bathtub because there's no hot water like I was like I've done that with dish soap instead of uh regular soap he like soaps up his water with like yeah just like half a bottle of dawn yeah I, uh, I was a little apprehensive about the movie at first because there's been so many major gay releases, like queer films, that are these tragedies where, like, I keep seeing the same story over and over again where you see this queer romance and you're like, oh, one of them's going to die at the end and you're going to feel sad about how cruel the world is. Yeah. And it's becoming kind of, like, monotonous to, like, never have a celebratory or, like, a normalized, like, queer movie. So for this to be like a sad major release, I was kind of worried about it being a cliche like that, but it was not that at all. No. It's this very like artfully done, it's beautiful to look at. Oh my god, some of the shots. There's just these moments where time just stops, and they just really let us luxuriate in the moment, which I really appreciate, because some of these shots are just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it gets very abstracted, like anytime something really, even, even something really good or something really bad happens to him, time just sort of falls out of sync. Yeah, they uh, they do a really cool thing where the sound stops syncing with with the moment, like kind of after an explosion, like everybody's like hearing's a little off. They kind of do like something to that effect uh, in this, which I thought was a really cool way of like showing that the character's stunned either in a good way or in a bad way. Yeah, and you like sink into his dreams, which is kind of cool. And instead of being this sort of like almost like a biopic structure, it's separated into like a triptych. So you see like three different moments in his life so instead of getting this like kind of overview where you just sort of watch someone grow up you get this like actual intense um slice of life yeah and there's no there's not a lot of narrative carryover from one to the other like we don't find out what happens in between the chapters it's just like we infer a few things but they don't really like spend a lot of time like explaining things to us they just drop us in place yeah, I was expecting a much more conventional film than the one we watched, and I thought it was really great. Yeah, yeah, no, that was it was really great. What'd you think of Joshi? Ooh, Joshi, that is a real bummer of a film. Uh, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but pretty much the main character played by Thomas Middleditch was supposed to get married, and now he's not. And so him and all of his friends decide to throw his bachelor party anyways uh, as a distraction, and... It becomes a party out of bounds movie at one point, and it also becomes this really just depressing narrative of how men can't deal with their emotions, and <laughs> it's real messed up. 
Yeah, instead of like actually talking through their problems, they just do like mountains of cocaine or like they have this uh, fantasy board game they play to like escape reality. At, towards the end, they just start like screaming like it's not okay to be sad. <laughs> but yeah, it's like a really great dark comedy, and like you said, it's it's the story where like the party should definitely stop and everyone should go home, but they keep pushing through anyway. Yeah, and it, there is at one point, like, a character who's, like, the voice of reason, and, like, they show up and they're like, hey, so do we need to talk about this? Like, should we, like, stop partying? And, like, you know, maybe you guys should all stop doing some coke, and, like, maybe we could just, like, all, like, talk? And they're just like, no! <laughs> and, you know, as a result, like, they actually do have an emotional breakthrough. So maybe they were kind of advocating for that. Like, <laughs> no, we don't need to talk about this and, like, soft tones and not look each other in the eye we need to just drink and snort our way through this yeah i had never really heard of the director before about a month ago um i heard aubrey plaza talking about him on rupaul's podcast of all places but uh he wrote life after he wrote and directed life after beth and he wrote co-wrote iron huckabees with david o russell and i like everything he's done so far it's got jeff bain a really interesting stuff i think josh is probably his best movie to date it's really just dark but also have you screaming with laughter in these like kind of small moments because there's so much like dramatic pressure on the yeah. movie. And it's just a great cast of comedians and like people who have worked with each other long enough that they know how to feed off each other's chemistry. So there's Thomas Middleditch, there is um, Jenny Slate, Jenny Slate, Aubrey Plaza. Aubrey, Aubrey Plaza was a little uh, cameo in it. Um, Nick Kroll. Nick Kroll is a large part of the chaos of it. Um, Brett Gelman. Oof, he is a dark, dark Yeah, that's man. a dark soul. <laughs> Which I had never heard of him before that show Love on Netflix, and he's been around a lot since then, and he's just always out-bitters uh, himself. His comedy's very acidic. <laughs> it's kind of difficult to like get through it. And, I don't know, since then I've seen a few movies from this year that I liked parts of, but didn't really like fall in love with. Um, I saw Doctor Strange, which was okay. I, I didn't love it. Um, certain women had some really great performances, but wasn't a particularly like amazing movie. The Little Prince on Netflix, I've heard a lot about. It was fine. Um, so I've been kind of like on, on a. I guess Moonlight a was just fine <laughs> trajectory. Yeah, like Moonlight, I guess kind of like outshone all these films that I watched like immediately after. But I have seen two older films recently that were really good. I went back and watched Mad Max Fury Road in that black and chrome edition they did, where it was in black and white. Just absolutely insane film. The theater was having a problem with the projector. It was uh, whining and this like really high-pitched hiss. It was horrible. So I ended up sitting in the very front row. So I was just like immersed in this giant like <laughs> Mad Max imagery. And at that particular theater, the front row is like literally like three feet from <laughs> the screen. So yeah, it's not a super huge screen, but when you're right in front of it, it's uh, it's intense. It was kind of weird. It felt more like a 90s artifact in the fact that it was black and white, especially with, like, the supermodels and stuff. It kind of looked like an old perfume commercial almost. But Ooh, like... or that uh, that song from uh, Chris Isaac, you know, uh, where he's yeah. on the beach with the model and yeah. he's making out on the beach and it's in black and white. That's how you know it's serious. And yeah, deep. like, yeah, uh, white zombie music videos or something. Like, it just had, like, an old gritty 90s uh, indie vibe. Uh, which was interesting way to see the movie again, but the thing about watching it every time is that I'm always so exhausted by even the first chase scene <laughs> that I still don't feel like I've fully like consumed it. Now we've, I've seen it in 2D, 3D, and black and white, and I still feel like I haven't fully watched Fury Road because it's so overwhelming. 
But in a good way, though. I, I really love that movie. Well, when it comes out, I mean, I'm sure it is already out on streaming, but have you, have you thought about watching it, like, at home, like, on the television screen? <laughs> I don't know. I think three times in the theater. I, I probably need a break for a while. And then... In the past 24 hours, I've watched all three films in the Candyman series. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I don't know where this came from. Well, actually, the director of Candyman did our movie of the month right now, Paper House, which was this really great creepy children's film uh, with this great score from Hans Zimmer. Just really eerie stuff. Uh, and he also did Candyman. So I went to watch that to sort of compare the two. And that had an even creepier score from Philip Glass, which surprised me. It's so weird to think that Philip Glass did, like, a horror movie. Like, I don't really think of his music as being good for horror movies. I mean, I guess it would be, but... It's really anyway. unnerving. And then, um, also written by Clive Barker, uh, yeah, or based, based off on, his short story. Based off anyway. a short story of his. And he was an executive producer on the first two films in the series. And I've been kind of interested in his stuff lately, from, like, the Hellraiser movie we were talking about, and um, Nightbreed. Had that director's cut came out kind of recently, and it was really good. Like the first one is incredible. It's got this like mirror dimension demon. It's about urban legends. The power of like words. Yeah. And, like you have to keep stories alive by like telling them, and that's how this like particular monster stays alive. He's also made entirely of bees, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> it's an absurd like detail, and he um is like the only black slasher character I could think of. So you have like Freddy, Jason. Like a major, major franchise, yeah. Yeah, like Michael Myers. They're all these white guys. Usually like having a bl black man menacingly chase white women around might not be the most like progressive thing, but it's kind of cool to have this like major slasher character be a, a black man. The second one set in New Orleans. Very, very silly. Uh, set during... How accurate was it? <laughs> they go out of their way to mention everything from like chicory to gumbo. It's set during Mardi Gras. Oh, hey, y'all. I'm a, I'm a Cajun, and I'm mayor of Gumbo Town. Would you all like a filet snowball? And they uh, did the same thing in the third one. It's set in L.A. during uh, Day of the Dead. So they like try to replace some of the atmosphere with like local color, which is kind of awful, but it, it makes it silly. And the um, gore gets more ridiculous as the movies get worse. So at least there's some kind of like eye candy to entertain you. Well, yeah, you know, like that's that's the scale. Either we put all of our money into actually writing the movie or we just buy more fake blood. Yeah. <laughs> now the first one has some kills, but it's not like gratuitous. And the other ones, there's a lot of like, yeah, the killer has a hook for a hand. He just like plows his whole hook hand through a person and just like opens them up. It's really gross pretty disgusting there's chunks of brain everywhere <laughs> i caught parts of the third one i did not see any of the first or second but I did catch that gem of a third one yeah Ooh. you caught the worst one of the bunch but i think the second one's definitely worth watching if you're uh in new orleans like we are and you like terrible local references if that makes you laugh uh this one's just full of it didn't you say they had a snowball stand in the french quarter that had a secret back room full of voodoo stuff <laughs> yeah it's like a block away from the cathedral <laughs> So it's like the most expensive property in the city, and it's a snowball stand. Which generally range for about, like, I don't know, like a, a stuffed, like, really fancy snowball at most places might be as much as, like, $4. Yeah, there's no way Ooh. they're keeping the doors open with this. Uh, and in the back, there's this, like, fake wall uh, that's, like, full of voodoo stuff and, like, paintings by the uh, man who became Candyman after he was murdered. It's, it's very silly. Uh, the first one's obviously, like, a great art film. The other two are just campy. Yeah, I like I feel like in in like probably the nineties there was at least like one like thesis paper on like 
after effects of, you know, like, slavery and segregation and Jim Crow and lynching culture, like, on the horror psyche of, like, the American people and, like, how, like, Candyman was, like, born out of that, like, out of the horrors of lynching and, like, murder and, like, how they created this, like, character, like, to, like, cope, but, you know, obviously, like... I don't know if by the third movie you could really like look at it through that lens. They keep the uh, his his origins as like a, a murdered slave is retold each film, so they try to keep that as like a fabric of the movies, but it's less seriously dealt with each time. Oh, do do do! He yeah. was a slave and he got lynched. Now he's gonna murder us. <laughs> oh, he didn't get lynched. He was uh, slathered with honey. Oh, that's right. And then bees ate him alive, and that's why he's full bees of bees now. Bees don't eat honey. Bees make honey. <laughs> Grubs eat the honey. Why do, why, why do movies always do this to bees? It's unfair <laughs> to the bees. Well, um, Ants, maybe. <laughs> yeah, Ant, we, Ant-Man, I guess, was kind of taken by Marvel, though. So We watched a bunch of Ant, Ants uh, horror movies recently. They, Ants did. have seen their, their time. I think. That's true. You're right. There's only a couple bees horrors. Uh, I remember there's a couple like bee-themed ones, like when Africanized honeybees were like in the news a lot. Oh, yeah, there are a couple of those. So. I guess Spirit of the Beehive is kind of a horror movie. But the bees don't, The bees like, don't kill anybody. The bees definitely don't kill anyone. Yeah. And it's also not... The girl is being haunted by a Frankenstein and the ghost of Frankenstein, not bees, so... A missed opportunity. If, if Frankenstein's monster just opened his mouth and bees come out, imagine how much horrifying Spirit of the Beehive might have been. You know, maybe... You know what? It's 2016. <laughs> Trump is our president-elect. Why not remake Spirit of the Beehive as a horror movie? They're already remaking Suspiria. Uh, the guy who made The Witch is going to be remaking Nosferatu. I just, I see the possibilities here. Let's start opening up uh, the Criterion Collection vaults and picking out art house films and, re- you know, translating them into horror movies. What's the odds on Trump one day opening his mouth and just bees pouring out? <laughs> Ooh. Well, you know, the betting pool is now open. Uh... <laughs> well, um, today, like I said, we are going to be recapping what we saw at 2016 New Orleans Film Fest. Before we get into that, uh, our Movie of the Minute segment, I made CC watch The Naked Civil Servant. All that's coming up to you right now. When these people came to me and said, we should like to make a film of your life, I said, yes, do. Films are fantasies. Films are magical illusions. You can make my life a fantasy as I have tried but failed to make it. But then they said we want the film to be real. You know, real life. So I said any film, even the worst, is at least better than real life. Then they said, though of course we should have to have an actor to play you. I said I have spent 66 years on this earth painfully attempting to play the part of Quentin Chris. I have not succeeded. Yes, of course you must have an actor to play me. He will do it far better than I have done. And now it's time for our movie The Minute segment. This is where Cece and I bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. I had originally picked out a... Um, sort of morbid fairy tale film for this segment, but in light of the uh, morbid atmosphere that we're experiencing in real life and the fact that Halloween should probably be put on the back burner for a minute to sort of move away from that horror realm I've been living in for the past two months, um, I instead decided to switch over to this film I hadn't seen since high school called The Naked Civil Servant. It's a 1975 made-for-TV film in which John Hurt plays the infamous uh, celebrity Quentin Crisp, who is one of the um, first people that was famous just for 
the fact that he was famous. He's this flamboyantly gay socialite who never really found any real purpose in life. Like, he worked as an art model for a large part of his um, adult life. Didn't really do much, but made a uh, name for himself just for being such an openly queer person in a society where it was literally illegal for him to exist. A lot of the film tracks him soliciting sex for money just to get by before he finds his art model career path. He suffers violence under the hands of police and potential Johns and just people on the street who can't stand the sight of him. But instead of cowering away, he makes his affect homosexuality very apparent. He dyes his hair, he paints his nails, um, he flirts with the idea of doing drag once or twice, but he makes it very clear that he's not a woman, he is a man, he just wants to, everyone to know that he is a flamboyant person who exists in the world. And the thing that surprised me going back to watch it this time was that I had remembered it being kind of a sad, sad ending to his story because uh, there's just so much violence and like legal issues that he has to deal with and there's a stretch of the film that deals with world war ii but what i had not remembered is that it's actually just a riotous comedy he's one of the uh people that you could describe in the modern world who most closely resembles oscar wilde he just has these ridiculous jokes he punctuates every encounter he has uh whether positive or negative he's just a easily funny funny person who doesn't put that into writing until he writes his autobiography which the the movie is based off of and it just makes it a much more pleasurable comic experience than what i'd remembered seeing it um probably almost two decades ago so uh cc what did you think about the naked civil servant i thought it was really good the quality we saw it at wasn't amazing but also it was a 1975 made for tv movie from britain so the quality as far as like camera work and stuff like wasn't the best but you know i thought all the performances were really good all the acting was excellent <clears throat> i really liked the plot structure uh quentin crisp himself introduces the movie uh and he very sadly informs us that they insist on someone else playing him <laughs> uh and they also tell him you know we want like a younger quentin crisp and he he gives them some of the suggestions of like what scenes they should use uh, and he kind of, like, introduces us to those scenes that, like, are, like, his personal, like, favorites, which I thought was kind of cute. Also, you know, like, Quentin Crisp was really lucky that he wrote an autobiography when he was fairly young. He wrote that sometime in the 60s. He actually was a pretty prolific writer. I didn't know that. Yeah, he has, like, 20 books. What? Yeah, he, he wrote a lot. Oh. <laughs> I, I knew him as, like, a letter. But he did that after, like, this, this, this uh, biopic did catapult him to fame, it it pretty much made both him and John Hurt famous. And so I think after that, there was more clamoring for his writing after that, once he realized, oh, hey, it's another way I can make a buck. Like, and not all of it's like, you know, there's not really much fiction. It's just him just writing, you know, just like essays uh, and like quotes and like just like him going off on a tear about something. Yeah, I mostly just knew him as like a socialite who was often quoted. Yeah, another big thing... Uh, and this is all courtesy of Wikipedia. Thank you, Wikipedia. Uh, <laughs> after after this biopic came out and he was kind of catapulted to fame, people would often invite him to dinner. And so he would assume that if he was invited to dinner, he wasn't going to be paying for it. And so he thought it was his job to make it as entertaining as possible by being as funny as possible during dinner. So he just became somebody who you would just invite to dinner to make your dinner party like more interesting. And that was like how he, he would sing for his supper. Like that's how he... he made his supper for for decades after the movie came out uh so he didn't pass away until like the 90s or something like that 
or the maybe the early 2000s he was in his 90s when he finally died um i know he outlived princess diana because he said some very rude things about her after her death but he was also a controversial figure who would just say things for the sake of saying them what was his um his quote it was like uh, i hope to live for a century with 10 years off for good behavior and he lived to be 91 so he got his wish <laughs> almost on the dot almost on the dot so the movie kind of starts off in this cafe society, like 1930s um, very, England. Yeah, very, very cabaret, like, you know, that like, between the wars period where like, there was a certain amount of loosening of social mores, not as much in England as maybe, you know, in Paris or in um, Weimar, Germany, but still like, there was this like cafe society, although their cafe was not nearly as like glamorous as like maybe one in Paris. It was just like really like a grimy little shithole where they serve tea yeah that's how he first discovered who he was really he discovered this sort of gang of homosexuals that hanged out in this like dingy cafe off the, off the beaten path and they all worked the streets together in between um talking shit <laughs> yeah pretty much um and they all use like an ex- they extensively use uh, an argot which is not really heard very often anymore and i've forgotten the name of it off the top of my head but uh you can look it up uh, it's out there, but it's like an early gay slang where, like, terms like zhuzh. So when you're watching Drag Race and they are told to zhuzh it up, they get that term from from this argot, uh, this slang language. You said drag itself was from that language. Yeah, yeah. They uh, bona drag means like nice outfit, and they use that term a lot. So the very early scenes of like him like first encounter encountering other homosexuals, like. They're all speaking and you cannot understand what they're saying. Like they need <laughs> subtitles because it is like such an opaque slang that they're using. It's British, but like it's also very bitchy and performative and yeah, yeah. There's it's, there's like these like dramatic flares to it, you know. But after um, after that, he does once he earns a place on his own. Uh, he works briefly for this artist doing like artist proofs for like magazines and stuff. He earns a place on his own and actually sort of forms a nice tight-knit group of people that aren't just fellow, like, sex workers. It's this, like, little society of, like, weirdos that don't really see him any differently because of his sexuality, which is uh, probably very difficult to come by in that era. And then you watch the war just fuck them up. Like, nobody gets out of that the same as before they went in. And it was kind of cool to see a stretch of the movie where it, his sexuality wasn't really, like, the problem. There was a much bigger problem going on. Yeah, he seemed to have survived the war pretty pretty unscathed, although he did have to buy a lot of henna the day the war broke out because who knows the next time he's going to be able to buy hair dye. I mean, <laughs> yeah. but everyone else, like, seriously goes through some psychological, like, torture. Uh, they really lose their shit in the war. One of the big crises in the film is when he realizes he's getting old, so he switches from henna hair dye to purple hair dye. Yeah. So you've become an old biddy. As is his natural next step in life. I like how at the end, too, they sort of do these... Um, there's a couple set pieces that are more abstract and not mm-hmm. quite as, like, biopicy. There's a, um, a scene in a ballet studio where all his friends sort of reunite for one last goodbye. Uh, some of them are nuns now. Some of them are mentally damaged from the war. Some have just, like, devolved into, like, alcoholism and marrying rich, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Dripping with jewels, but, like, barely, barely uh, cognate. Cognizant. Oh yeah, she seems pilled out towards the end. Yeah, no, she 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 married rich. She she did what she had to do to survive, you know. 
And the other scene was um, on the dock of a boat, and he's surrounded by sailors. And this is his one happy memory that he has. Uh, Singular happy memory in life <laughs> is this one moment. And he's surrounded by these sailors who are kind of flirting with him and sort of joshing him at the same time. And what he finds so heartwarming about this is that nothing sexual happens between them, and he's the center of attention, and they laugh at his jokes. And he just loves being, like, adored in that way. Yeah, like, none of them are interested in him sexually. These are all a bunch of heterosexual sailors. But they're, they, like, are like, oh, hey, look at this gay over here. Isn't he cute? Like, they don't feel like beating the shit out of him like everyone else does. They're just like, oh, no, like, you're funny. Like, you crack jokes. Like, we're all gonna laugh with you, like, and adore you because you're way better at cracking jokes than we are. Like, we can, like, say something to rib you and you come up you come back with this amazing response. It's great. And then b- besides this one stretch, during the war when American soldiers come over to England, he has a bunch of sex that he actually enjoys during that time yeah, period. Yeah, no, apparently Americans are better at sex. I think it's also because they're straight men. Yeah. And he, he appreciates that attention. Yeah. Um, but other than that, he doesn't really seem interested in sexual intercourse. I think one of the first jokes he makes is that sexual intercourse is a poor substitute for masturbation. It's one of his, like, rules of life. They, they even, like, uh, do the old, uh, tiny silent film, like, placard. Inter- intertitles. To, intertitles, yeah. yeah. To, like, give us his true golden rules, and that is, like, rule number two, that <laughs> sex is a poor, poor substitute for masturbation. <laughs> uh, Which is kind of funny for a man who, like, suffered so much, like, legal troubles and just physical harassment for being homosexual. He doesn't particularly enjoy practicing sexual, yeah. like, yeah. congress at all. Yeah, he'd much rather just be flamboyant and masturbate, like... As we all would. <laughs> yeah. And uh, kind of like what I was talking about with Moonlight, you're so used to these um, stories ending in tragedy. I like that he gets his victory at the end when it cuts to like modern England and everyone's dressed flamboyantly because it's like hippy-dippy uh, yeah, 70s. Yeah, it's, it's glam. No, it's not even hippies. It's the glam uh, it's era. the glam 60s. It's, it's the yeah. glam. So, you know, like David Bowie's just starting to like come to ascendance. Like it's very Velvet Goldmine looking. Uh... There's just like high high platform like glitter boots everywhere and like all the men are wearing like these satin shirts that are unbuttoned to the navel like it's beautiful. <laughs> He's just like, haha, I caused this. Yeah, he just had to wait long enough for the world to catch up to him or something like that. Yeah. What do you think of John Hurt's performance as Quentin Crisp? I mean, John Hurt is an amazing actor, uh, and I thought this was really good. He is known for his beautiful, deep, mellifluous voice, and he did not use that in this because Quentin Crisp has a very high, soft, effeminate voice, uh, which is very different from John Hurt, like, you know, usually. But he did surprisingly reappri- reprise this role later in life to play Quentin Crisp in his later years. I need to see that. Yeah, so Quentin Crisp early in the movie also says that he does not believe in living abroad, that it is all just a cheat, and he's fairly certain the foreigners are all just speaking English behind our backs. So <laughs> and I think he eventually moves to New he York. He moves to New York, yeah. so he ends up living abroad. Although... Are Americans speaking English behind their backs? I don't know. <laughs> also, like, John Hurt's, like, soft butter body in this movie. Yeah, no, he's... he's. <laughs> I mean, he's never really a macho, like, big guy in a lot of his roles, but, like, you know, he's kind of ropey, but he's just... He's so soft. Soft is no pigment? Like no he... pigment, no body hair, <laughs> just, like, soft and buttery, like a baby. But, yeah, I, I screamed laughing at so many, like, barbs in this film. I can't even, like, quote them for you right now, but they're probably best experience coming out of his, like sort of a Truman Capote uh, way of like performing for the camera. 
um, vamping, I guess you would call it, but I I had a lot more fun revisiting this than I kind of expected to. I mean, like, trigger warning, there is a lot of gay bashing in it, but, like, in between, like, him getting punched in the face and the stomach, he'll, like, come back with these barbs, like, they'll be like, you're a faggot, and he's like, well, maybe you are, like, did you, did you ever <laughs> think about that, like... I don't know, guys. Maybe maybe that's why you're beating the shit out of me. Yeah, he would. He has a way of like making people laugh while they're harassing him. Like, no, even people who like hate his very existence like find him amusing. It's this strange thing, and that's like his biggest political stance that he takes is that he makes no apologies for his own existence, which is really like heartwarming in, in a strange kind of way. Yeah. Even though he doesn't like engage with life very sincerely, he has a sincere cause with just the way he like carries himself which yeah. is kind of awesome yeah, he's trying to get everyone else to admit that they're the problem and not him and like he does it pretty successfully like there is a point where he is you know arrested essentially for being gay and he has to go to court and like prove like his innocence more or less while at the same time like being like no i am gay like they were correct on that but they are incorrect about these other charges yeah, and he makes, like, the fact that he's, like, publicly harassed in the street, like, a part of the public record in that scene, which is a pretty yeah. good turnaround on, on the uh, accusation. I, I don't I don't really know what else really to add here, other than I think this probably should be more often viewed as, like, I don't want to say a milestone, but, like, a, an interesting part of, like, queer cinema. Um, even though it wasn't a theatrical release, I think it's a really well-made film, very funny, and it's a good snapshot of a time when cruising was like very dangerous and had to be done like undercover uh and i don't think you see 30s london queer culture on screen the same way that you do here very often well especially now because we have the 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 gleam of nostalgia for things you know like oh wasn't it great you know the 30s the weimar area era you know like, yeah, you have the like jazz. gay Paris and all that and it's like well people still got that shit kicked out of them they, all the time they tell him to move to Paris several times in the film and he's like no I'm gonna this is where I am I'm no. gonna exist here I'm not gonna run away hmm. um, besides people probably would have wanted to have way too much sex with him once he moved to Paris <laughs> <laughs> oof. at least stay in England where you know, people are a little bit more neuter Wait, I, I just remember one of my favorite lines he's talking about uh, cleaning his apartment because he's just, like so lazy he just wants to be domestic, but not in like a cleaning or cooking kind of way. He like doesn't want yeah. to learn any of that. Yeah, stuff. he doesn't. He doesn't want to be a woman. Like he says that multiple times, and he does not want to do any of the woman's expected roles of cleaning and cooking. He hates that. But he likes being domestic, just because he likes being at home. Um, yeah. But uh, one of his his lovers uh, asked him why he never cleans the place, and sort of like points out on the dust. And he's like, "Oh, I learned a labor saving tool. After the first four years, the dust doesn't get any worse." It's true. <laughs> Which, I don't know. It's 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 that kind of like. Uh, like 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 we said, Oscar Wilde kind of like quips and like truisms. Uh, he's very funny, and I'm sure a lot of that's straight out of the book. So I probably should actually read that at some point. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, it's not that he's necessarily like a caricature or anything like that. Like, you can see that that that's a veneer on who he really is. That like he is this desperately lonely, sad person a lot of the times, and he is using this as like a way of like defending himself and like creating this wall between him and everyone else. Uh, so in some ways it's really heartbreaking, even though it's also riotously funny. Uh, it can be both. Yeah, a lot of humor comes from that kind of dark place. Yeah. And even his asexuality is sort of like a defeatist attitude because he has this like I romantic ideal in his head of like what kind of man you would want to fall in love with, and he just sort of accepts at a certain point that that's never coming. And at the end of the movie, he's still like a sixty-year-old man, and 
I mean, we don't know what happens after the book because we haven't read his other books. Obviously, I didn't even know they existed. But um, <laughs> like he just never found that like ideal he had in his head. Yeah, at least by 1975. Who right. knows what happens after that? Right. Anything else you want to say on the way out? Nope, I'm good. Uh, this is very easily available on YouTube. Probably a D- DVD copy you can find out there for cheap, but it's um, the quality is probably not going to be much better than what you find on YouTube because it was recorded from the television. Yeah. This isn't any cheap X-rated movie or any fifth-rate porno play. This is the show you want. Lady Divine's Cavalcade of Perversion. The sleaziest show on earth. Not actors, not paid imposters, but real, actual filth. Who have been carefully screened in order to present to you the most flagrant violation of natural law known to man. And now we're back for our feature conversation. This is a month out after New Orleans Film Fest. Uh, usually, Cece and I go to maybe two screenings a year. I think last year I might have made four, which was like unheard of. Um, but between the two of us, this year we saw ten movies that played at the film festival. Um, so there's going to be a lot to go through at this point. You went before I did to the headquarters for the festival. was at the Ace Hotel downtown. It was. And you saw the animated shorts package? I did. There was, I think, about 13 uh, shorts, which we voted on, um, which I never actually looked at the final tally to see, like, where they fell. Um, but, yeah, it was it was, it was a, a little chaotic. It was their first day. Uh, it was their first, like, big day, I think, where they had, like, more than 10 people show up. So they didn't really know how to sort the crowd. So there was, like, a little bit of, like, pushing and shoving, like, literally. Like, people, like, being like, no, I get to go in first. No, I do. Until they, like, sorted us all out. But, yeah, like, uh, most of the shorts ranged from about 5 to 12 minutes apiece. You said there were a lot of bird content? Yeah, strangely, there was multiple bird ones. The very first one was about, like, a family of blackbirds. And it was a really cool, it was, like, construction paper style. Where it was, like, stop motion animated with, like, these cutouts uh, from construction paper. And then, like, um... It's about a family of blackbirds that are being harassed by a cat, and like the baby bird's like first flight, and then there was one a little later where a blackbird uh, was harassing a little redbird uh, family and like messing with them. Uh, and you know, I didn't like that one as much just because I was, um, that one was called a, a Birdie, and that was the world premiere of it. But because I had already watched Tale of Crows, the one about the blackbird family, crow family, I was. A little more sympathetic with the bird, the black bird in this one, than the red birds. <laughs> so, like, some of them, like, primed me in a weird way. There was also a, one later um, called There's Too Many of These Crows. It was literally about there being too many crows and, like... Uh, that sounds like it could have been the name of the show, because there's just too many birds. There was too many bird ones. Uh, it was weird. There, that one was drawn, like, on notebook paper with, like, a ballpoint pen, so it had, like, this really amateurish uh, feel to it. But it also was, like, a really, like, juvenile story, like... There's, like, a hunter, and he shoots the crows, and his wife's, like, picking him up to put in a basket for dinner, and then all of a sudden, like, the crows come out of nowhere and, like, peck his eyes out and kill him and tear him apart, and the wife, like, runs and, like, finds some police officers who then, like, try and kill the crows, and, like, everybody's literally torn apart by them, and, like, it escalates to, like, machine guns and tanks, 
and a nuclear bomb. And then, after everything has been obliterated, the crows tear open the paper itself and start pouring out. Uh, like, they, like, go meta with it. That's kind of so cool. So to speak. Yeah, it was, like, it, it was, like, weird how they, like, did these things. That one was a surprising only four minutes long, actually. I'm looking at the program now. But there's, like, a, a couple other really cool ones, too. Like, there was this one uh, about clouds that was done using fiber art. Or maybe that one was called... Yeah, that one was called uh, Clouds. Um, and... Or no, sorry, I'm looking at... There's so many of these. There was actually two about clouds. Um, a Love Story was the one where they were... Uh, it was fiber art, and there was these cloud-like creatures who would, like, exchange threads to, like, show their, like, love for one another. There was another one also about clouds where uh, an old man would see things in the clouds, and whatever he saw in the clouds that day, that's what they would sacrifice ritualistically in his village. And, of course, it, like, escalates in that one to where, like, at first he sees, like, a duck and, you know, or chicken, and then he sees, like, a goat... And then, like, he sees, like, a horse, and his wife's becoming more and more horrified at, like, the, like, size of these sacrifices. Then eventually he sees his wife, uh, and they throw her over a cliff. And then, uh, finally he, like, sees the people who are doing the human sacrifices and draws them in the book, uh, and then throws himself off the cliff and gets eaten by a fish. (laughs) Like, some of these were pretty depressing. Did you have a favorite? Uh, There was one called Love, uh, that was three different chapters, and it was about, like, the solar system. It reminded me a lot of Adventure Time, like, this, like green comet uh impacts this like kind of like dreary world it's like more or less black and white uh and it affects the world and like changes the types of like wildlife on it and like how they interact with one another and then eventually like all the green in the planet compresses itself back into a little cube and like shoots itself back off into space and like i guess infects other planets. I don't want to say infects, but like inoculates other planets. Uh, I thought that one was really cool and it was drawn really interestingly. And there was another one called 349 and it was literally 349 drawings and it's two figures and they're like dancing and each frame of it is drawn by a different person in a completely different style. And I thought that one was really Oh, that's cool. kind of cool. Yeah. It wasn't like much narratively, but like I thought it was a fun concept. Yeah, just the uh, form of that sounds cool. Yeah. But uh... How was the uh, atmosphere at the Ace Hotel? Like what was that theater like? Um... Well, in this case, uh, they were using, like, a hotel conference room, and they had, like, a bleacher risers kind of set up with chairs on them, uh, and then the screen was was at the base, you know, amphitheater-style kind of. And the quality was fine. All that was fine. Um, you know, like I said, it was a little jostling at the beginning because they didn't really have, like, the lines, like, set up correctly. Um, but there were a lot of people wearing passes. There was a lot of filmmakers there, uh, a lot of directors and other people involved. Uh, they had a couple other exhibits set up. They had like a virtual reality exhibit um, that rotated like day by day throughout the festival that was there. We went we went and ate dinner at the hotel later in the week between movies, and they had two different rooms with two different concerts going on. Yeah, the Ace Hotel has a lot going on. There's two <laughs> different restaurants in the Ace Hotel: the Josephine Estelle and then uh, Wayfair, maybe no Sea Seaworthy, uh, which is their oyster bar. Then I think they have like just the regular hotel bar. They have multiple venue spaces within the hotel. Like they have a lot going on in that building. Yeah. So. Well, um, later that night we took the trek out to Shalmet Movies for the first time during the fest to see John Waters' 1970, I want to call it a black-and-white horror monster movie um, (laughs) called Multiple Maniacs. This is the uh, restoration that's been slowly making its way across the country. It it took a long time for it to get here. I never thought we were going to be able to see it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's 
you, we could go to Harvard, I think, and see it because they have uh, John Waters' early films on film there. Um, but maybe that or the IFC Theater in New York. Like those are like the only places where you could really see some of these early uh, John Waters films that were never released. Well, yeah, th- this uh, one's like the digital restoration they just did this year, though. Yeah, uh, so it might be on DVD at some point. Yeah, I think um, actually Criterion bought the the rights for it. Oh, well, like, yes. Um, I mean, this is my favorite director, so just seeing a new film from him that I'd never seen before, even though it's technically one of his oldest films, was um, one of my favorite experiences from the festival. Maybe my very favorite. Um, like I said, it, it almost feels like a monster movie. The, the only other film from his catalog I can maybe call a horror film is... Um, Serial Mom? Serial Mom, yeah. Which, you know, it's a it's a horror comedy and this one's also a comedy, but it feels more... More like a monster, like, there's, like, something menacing. And that menacing thing is... Da, 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 divine. divine. <laughs> the world's greatest drag queen uh, slowly becomes more monstrous over the course of the film until at the end she's basically, like, Godzilla. She's chasing uh, all these poor ba- Baltimore um, normies down the street uh, while the military is called in to put, put her to, to an end. Um, and this happens right after she is raped by a gigantic lobster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, shortly before that, she was raped by a crossdresser and his girlfriend. Uh, you know, like a lot, of, a lot of messed up stuff happens in this one. She's also coerced into lesbian sex that involves an anal rosary bead. Yeah, in, in a church. <laughs> in during, a church during mass. Um. <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean, but none of those things like usually sexual assault, like pretty much puts a full breaks on when I'm enjoying a film. Yeah, no, we're not big on that. We don't, we don't like <laughs> movies with uh, rape, you know? It's just, it's not our bag. But it's not played in any realistic or, it's not played in any realistic or gritty or even exploitative way here. It's like all part of this like cartoonish circus that starts with people like making out with bicycle seats and... Oh yeah, the perverts at the beginning. Oof. So the, the film starts with this Carnival Barker played by J- David Lockery uh, trying to entice people into the tent, and this includes the audience, to watch uh, Divine's um, Cavalcade of Horrors, or whatever he calls it. And it's just a freak show, pretty much. And yeah, that's how but, the fil- but like, a, a, like a 60s era freak show. So like, you know, like a, a man who, who eats puke, and uh, a guy who makes out the bicycle seat, and two lesbians! And... Uh, <laughs> I can't think of any of the others. Yeah, and and the film itself is like that. It's like a carnival horror, uh, maybe along the lines of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or uh, yeah, it's it's some like twisted twisted family. It's so gleeful in its uh, horror that it's it's hard to take anything seriously. Everything is just so cartoonish and just so farly abstracted from reality that. I found myself howling laughing where like almost any other exploitative film from this era, this like drive-in 70s era, would have maybe had me like recoiling in horror yeah, uh, and disgust, <laughs> but he just makes it fun. Um, and I, I mean, I, I don't think this is his best work by any stretch, but I, I think it's at least as good as Pink Flamingos, which came soon after. I, how did you feel about it on a whole? No, I really love this one. Um, it is the only one of his that I've seen that's black and white. And I thought they used that to good effect. Like, Divine's, like, lipstick looks like it's black. It looks like she's bleeding from the mouth most of the time. Um, her makeup in this one is not as over at the top as we're used to. Uh, she does not have the eyebrows all the way up to, you know, the heavens. Uh, she's looks a little more like a dowdy housewife for most of the movie <laughs> until she, like, snaps and goes insane. Um, it's also one of my favorite performances from Cookie Mueller. Oh, yeah. Um, who plays her daughter, who's also called Cookie. Um, I think... 
Maybe she has a different name. I no, they're all named after themselves. There's like okay. David, Mink, Cookie, Divine. They're all like themselves. They're all just themselves. Uh, she, well, she's Lady Divine. Uh, also, Edith Massey's first on-screen role in this film. She mm-hmm. plays herself as a bartender. Which she was a bartender, so. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, it's the most natural she's ever been on camera. <laughs> it's just being uh, this sort of like shifty bartender in this weird Baltimore yeah, like, she's, like, calling bowl. people behind their backs and, like, ratting everyone out and, like, being like, if you're going to be in this bar, you need to buy something. But, yeah, if you're already a fan of John Waters, I think this early glimpse at the Dreamlander crew is very essential to appreciating his work. And it, it definitely made me appreciate, if nothing else, David Lockery just... I, I yeah, assume... we didn't get enough David Lockery before he passed away in his in John Waters' movies, so... Well, I assumed from Pink Flamingos that that look he had created for um, Raymond Marbles was a look, like, for the character, but no, he just looks like that. What that a fucking freak. That's just what he looks like. No, his <laughs> hair is always like that. But also, I think there's wider appeal than that, too, just because these sort of early 70s horror films have a strange fascination to them anyway, and he does such a gleefully campy job of it. I watched a lot of Russ Meyer movies last year that this movie pulled influence from, for sure especially like Lorna and Mudhoney and Vixen. And I think this one makes it better. Like, it's an improvement on that formula. Yeah, like, it's not just like, hey, look at these freaks, and look at these terrible degrading things we can do to other people. But also, like, hey, we can do that and be funny. And punk. Like, it, it's... Yeah, it, the movie, it feels definitely so punk. And it's years before. You know, like, maybe the Stooges were a band at this point, or MC5, but, like... This movie is so incredibly punk, and it's years ahead of its time. It's like leopard print and kind of surf rock. Uh, yeah, they're all dressed like they're like extras in a Ramones music video. Yeah. Well, uh, then the next day we went um, during the afternoon to see Check It, a uh, documentary at the CAC, the Contemporary Arts Center. Um, this is directed by Dana Floor and Toby Oppenheimer. It is a documentary about an all-queer gang in Washington, D.C., Uh, mostly trans kids, hundreds of kids sort of banding together to physically beat back their, like, bullies and oppressors in D.C. The film itself is posed as a um, sort of reformation story. These sort of gang counselors come in and try to make useful members of society out of these kids. But the more fascinating half of it is just the fact that they exist in the first place. Uh, It's the first, like, what do they call it? The first, like, on-record queer gang in America. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's just... Some of it's hard to look at. There's all these, like, flip phone videos of, like, kids, like, jumping. Yeah, no, like, if they like someone's purse, they'll beat the shit out of them until <laughs> they can snatch that purse from them. Or, you know, if someone just looks at them wrong, like, after years of getting beat down themselves. Because also people would, like, take these, like, flip phone videos of them getting the shit kicked out of them. And, like, post everywhere be like, oh, look, we went gay bashing. And here's evidence of it. But, yeah, in, like, in a violent world... It's kind of cool that they found a way not to be a victim, even though not everything they do is cool <laughs> to, yeah. to maintain their like respectability status. Uh, they have to become violent themselves. Um, but I really appreciated just like a glimpse into that culture of, uh, of just queer kids, like basically like carving out a space for themselves where they can exist. I mean, I, for one, welcome my new gay overlords. <laughs> um. These like teenagers <laughs> that like, don't know what they're going to do with themselves on, like, a That's the thing, basis. like, all of them have this extremely nihilistic viewpoint of life. Uh, because, you know, like, their parents aren't around or are dead or are on drugs, and they're like, well, chance of me getting murdered's pretty high, like, who gives a shit? Like, 
probably not going to graduate from high school. Like, I don't know how to do anything. Like, I'm really going to beat the shit out of people, but that's about it. A lot of the trans kids get by by sex work, like, blocks away from the White House and Congress, like Capitol Hill. Yeah, and these are these are young kids that they, they filmed in this documentary, and they looked at it pretty unflinchingly. Like, some of them are, you know, lying, and they're like, I'm 17, and everyone's like, no, no they're 14. Yeah. Uh, and we know they're 14. Uh, like, they ranged from probably, like, 14, 15 to, like, 17, 18. Uh, a couple of them were a little older, like, 1920. Uh, but, yeah, it was just, like, really, like, hard and unflinching, like, knowing... The filmmaker would be, like, follow them a little bit, like, when they went to work, but, like, obviously the filmmaker couldn't get too close because no one would want to, like... Be on camera? <laughs> be on camera. <laughs> my, my only problem with this movie is the angle it comes at, where it, it, it finds this culture that's, like, really interesting and, like, exists for itself, and then it has these gang counselors it follows who try to make these kids um, sort of normalized and sort of undercuts what makes them special in the first place and sometimes it's interesting like i like a little bit of they they try to get the kids into fashion yeah because they're super obsessed with fashion like constantly like trying to like come up with new looks like for like as little money as possible so there is like this like summer long like fashion internship camp they can go to that at the end of it like the best ones can go to new york and like do a show during fashion week but then they also have a counselor that tries to get one of the kids to go into boxing and sort of man up and lose this like affet homosexuality. He like wears like a like pride on his sleeve, and the reason he got good at boxing is because he was fighting, yeah, uh, having to fight back all the time. Yeah. So and and that's what they were saying. Like all this stuff that you're wearing and how you're acting, it's not who you are. Like you're a man, you should man up. Um, which is just really gross. Yeah. And like, and the boxer was like, "I like you, even though you're queer." It's like, uh, uh... Yeah, and he... He loses interest and just Yeah, because he doesn't want people telling him he can't wear, like, a floral tank top. Like, he likes wearing a floral tank top. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, like, I wanted to like the movie more than I did just because, like, I would give the kids, like, five stars. Like, I was just so interested in the kids themselves. But the the movie comes from a perspective of, like... They're trying to save their lives, which is such which an is admirable good. goal. But they're doing it by not really listening or paying attention to, like, who the kids are or what they want. Yeah. There was a lot of, like, paternalistic, like, well, you need to find Jesus and you need to not be gay and you need to man up and you need to not beat people up and you need to stay in school. And, like, some of those lessons, you know, might be good lessons, but, you know, you weren't offering one without the other. You were offering them as a package deal. And some of those kids don't want all of those things. It was also cool to hear um, Dominique Young Unique and Cakes Tequila on a documentary soundtrack. That's not something I ever expected. No, I did not. <laughs> uh, but that's the music kids listen to. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, yeah. Or maybe it's the music the filmmaker picked for it. I have I no know. idea. I, they actually didn't really go into what the kids were listening to. Yeah. They were really into their Instagram accounts. Uh, some of them had Instagram accounts for two genders, which was kind of interesting. Um, even the ones that were not... I guess they were more non-binary than trans, but... Um, and some of them, some of them would would present one way when they were doing sex work, and then present a different way when they were actually like out about on the streets. Um, just depending. But. Yeah, I, I found I found it really interesting, but maybe not wholly successful. Yeah, I mean, also I don't know how that filmmaker ever would have found those kids, like without, without the, that in, like yeah. without these like gang counselors coming in. Uh, because those kids, I don't think, really want to be filmed for someone else's art. Like, 
they want to make their own art and they're pretty adamant about that throughout the the documentary and then that same night we went back to Chalmette to see the handmaiden from Park Chan-wook um, who directed Old Boy probably most famously um, this is a comedic erotic thriller so the handmaiden is based on a book that's set in Victorian England but uh, instead he reset the film and reimagined the film uh, as being set in Japanese occupied uh, Korea uh, in the 1920s or 30s and so a young Korean pickpocket is selected to be the handmaiden to a Japanese heiress uh, and help push her over the edge um, both uh, romantically and psychologically into the arms uh, of her accomplice uh, who is a Korean man who is posing as a Japanese lord in order to marry this heiress and then promptly lock her up in the nuthouse. Um, there are a bunch of twists and turns. Uh, it's very beautifully shot. I mean, just absolutely gorgeous visuals. Uh, it's a very meticulously crafted film. Very much so, like, and they, and they did change the plot in some really interesting ways to both talk about like uh, Korean identity uh, and like the Japanese occupation, about class issues, about love. Um, I feel like on the uh, imperialist, uh, you know, notes it is very much visually represented in the house that this whole thing takes place in. It's literally half Victorian, like English manor house made of stone, like follow the House of Usher type, like manor house mixed with the Japanese traditional Japanese house like it's both cultures like come together on this third you know Korean soil and I'm not usually a huge fan of like twisty movies like big major twists of the M. Night Shyamalan sort of pull the rug from under you twist usually annoys the shit out of me but this movie does it early and often in this way that makes it fun and playful so it's not like a uh, ah, I got you uh, like I don't feel like I was like tricked like no. it, was, it was like part of the story and it was like really well done i think that that storytelling style that he pulls off here is just as meticulous as that uh production design you were just talking about there's something really just like lovingly crafted about this film it's not something that was just sort of like rushed into you could tell this was like very he, he thought about planned. it for a while like he read the book he loved the book he got the rights to the book and then he like set about to like make it his own in a way that I don't know, I thought it was really interesting. Like, even if you had read the book, probably, you would not have known where the movie was going. But, like, in a way that would make you, like, kind of happy, I hope. Uh, again, I haven't read the book, so maybe maybe I wouldn't be as happy. But There's also a library full of erotic fiction this guy collects and forges. Uh, a lot of this movie is about forgery. Um, he is obsessed with collecting these Japanese um, bits of erotica because he himself believes that he is Japanese and sort of forges a Japanese identity. Um, and there's this just luscious library full of books where that would normally be something that I would drool over but then they make it this ugly abusive thing um, that's just a really interesting way to like subvert uh, what what aspects of the film you would normally sort of fall under their spell it makes in this like nasty uh, evil thing I, I really liked this movie a lot yeah no I thought it was really great um, and then the next movie we saw uh, was called my first kiss and the people involved directed by Luigi Campi this won the audience award for the festival, like best narrative feature. This one starts off as a muted drama about a, um, it's a halfway home for people who can't quite live on their own. It's like an assisted living kind of situation. Um, we start in the perspective of this girl who has these sort of paranoid delusions um, and can't speak. She's muted. She can't 
communicate with the other people in the house and there's a lot to negotiate with uh, between the different people's um, mental disabilities and as the story goes on she believes that she witnesses a murder and it becomes sort of this like strange psychological horror almost where we see this protagonist in this almost Hitchcock situation where she can't communicate what she's witnessed and everyone else um, is trying to help her in a way that she believes is getting off this murderer scot-free um, and she feels like she's kind of trapped in this house instead of it helping her get through the situation. What did you think of this movie? I thought it was really good. Um, it probably wasn't my favorite as a festival, uh, but a lot of my favorite ones were like things that were released a long time ago and are being re-released and big budget things. So definitely of like the indie films being shown at this, this was like one of the best ones. Um, I thought all the performances were really good. Um, Honestly, I thought some of the performances were so good I couldn't tell if they were actually acting or if they actually had hired people, you know, with with you know varying uh, degrees of autism and other um, not necessarily disabilities, but you know, other things going on uh, because they were all so good in their roles. Um, it was really beautifully shot. It was really uh, impressionistic. It was set in upstate New York with really like kind of on a farm type uh, area. There was all these beautiful lingering shots of our protagonist like interacting with nature uh, because she is so isolated uh, because she does not uh, communicate with the people around her. She chooses to like interact with the outside world. So you see her like tracing like, you know, spider webs in the trees and running her hands like through the grass. You see her really luxuriating in nature because that's like what she finds calming. Uh, and I thought they shot all of that stuff really beautifully. Uh, I thought the the murder mystery part was really interesting um, because it was horrifying. All these normal things keep happening, but they're shot in such a way, like from her perspective, that it does become very horrifying very quickly. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting way of doing it. It was an interesting take on an unreliable narrator in a lot of ways. Yeah, I like being put in her head because you don't really get an outside perspective from the movie. Like, you're sort of unraveling the situation as she does. And it all sort of comes to a head when another, um, one of her, like, roommates sort of makes a romantic advance towards her. And it's a lot for her to deal with. And that pressure is part of what makes, like, the murder mystery that follows, like, such a, like, boiling point to me. Yeah. I did not expect where this movie went. Like, no. I thought I'd kind of figured it out in the first 20 minutes, and it really, like, took me by surprise after that. Yeah, it was a very surprising movie. We didn't know a lot about this movie going in, uh, and I, I feel like that helped. But yeah, I know it was really just beautifully shot. I didn't know that there was going to be even, like, the murder mystery part. I didn't know any of that. I, I knew it was about a girl who lived uh, in an assisted living facility. Uh, I should say young woman, because these are all adults. Um, but she had a childlike nature to her. Uh, and that's all I knew. Yeah. <laughs> like, literally, that's it. Yeah, that one's really good. And then later that night, we saw another, like, really cheap indie at the Aquarium uh, IMAX screen. We saw Are We Not Cats, directed by Xander Robin. This is a romantic body horror about trichophagia, which is the uh, comp compulsion to eat hair. Um, and you see these two people sort of finding each other. Um, they're both dirt poor. I, I want to say on the East Coast somewhere. They're upstate New York as well. A yeah. very different upstate New York. <laughs> they uh, 
sort of listen to doom metal and old Detroit soul music. Um, they drink antifreeze to get drunk and like cheap jug wine, like Carla Rossi type alcohol. And they also do not eat food, really. Yeah, you don't see characters eating this movie very much. They keep mentioning how sick they feel, and it's like, yeah, it's because you're not taking care of your body. And part of that is that they both compulsively eat their hair. Uh, the guy eats, like, his chin hairs and his, like, arm hairs, and the girl is obsessed with eating, like, long strands of human hair. And it gets very disgusting as the film goes on uh, in almost, like, this Cronenbergian kind of way where it amounts to these, like, just hugely nasty moments of, like, body horror. Yeah, I know. It's like if uh, Quintron's aesthetic and David Cronenberg's aesthetic, like, came together in one thing. Because there's all these, like, weird art installations. The um, woman in this uh, has this apartment, this really strange, like, warehouse loft-type apartment where she's built a room-sized musical instrument-type thing that, that involves a lot of, like, lights and colors uh and it's syncopated to the music that she's playing uh and the guy has a little toy piano with light bulbs in it and he finds a big version of that and presents it to the girl as like a gift like like a mating ritual like type offering um so there's this like weird like visual elements to this movie not just because of the body horror but also because of the setting like it's dark and drab and winter outside in this like very upstate new york type area and then, like, indoors, it's all psychedelic colors and mobiles made of, like, old bite parts and organs. Not human organs, but, like, church organs. Uh, and light bulbs, and it's just it's just weird looking. And it's an oddly sweet little romance story for two, like, um, just lonely people. Yeah. So, I, I feel like some of that was, was supposed to be, like, a little bit ironic and sarcastic, but... Yeah, maybe so. I think they were kind of making fun of the protagonist, like, playing all the sappy, like, love music, because this guy really does believe that if he just finds a lady, everything will be okay. <laughs> and obviously that is not true, because there is a body horror element to it, like, things get gross, everything is not okay in these people's lives. It was particularly gross watching that on an IMAX screen. I've never seen a real IMAX screen. Yeah. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I felt like it was in a surgical, like, theater. Like... With the super steep banked seats, like, and, like, the 60-foot drop, and, like, just that huge screen. If I'm mad at this festival for anything, uh, it's that The Handmaiden didn't play at this IMAX screen, because watching those images that big would have been so nice. It would have been amazing. And also, that theater was huge. It was cavernous. Like, they could have fit, like, at least 100 people in there, and I feel like that many people wanted to see Handmaiden, but... They shot this. They showed us this film, which you know there was like maybe twenty five of us, including the filmmakers <laughs> and friends. It was still really good though. I, I, that was one of my favorite like surprises of the festival. I think was this one. Yeah, it was really well made. And it was weird. Uh, I don't think I could have seen that anywhere else. I highly doubt it's going to get a big run here in New Orleans. Um, so I'm really glad I caught that one. Yeah, and then uh, the next two I caught by myself. So I'll try to kind of run through them quickly. I, I saw this movie, Ovarian Psychos. Uh, it's this documentary about an all-women-of-color bike gang in Los Angeles. Basically, it's, it's a lot of Latina women. Um, basically, kind of like Take Back the Streets kind of thing, where they uh, do a lot of demonstrations on rape culture and being like publicly humiliated for just being a woman and outside. And they get through that uh, in this like kind of strength and solidarity thing, where they 
organize these massive bike rides, kind of like critical mass, where they basically take over the streets and they do these like chants, like "Whose streets? Our streets!" That kind of like call and response thing. It's this really infectious, like um, kind of like check it. It's this uh, like gang of people who find power themselves. Like they find a way to exist in a space that is inherently hostile to them. Um, the difference is that instead of with Check It, there's nobody coming um, in to like change who they are and make them better people. It's it's like all from within. It's just really... stop being a woman, you know. <laughs> You'd be better if you weren't a woman. <laughs> and uh, it's it's kind of interesting watching. Uh, the only like major change like narratively that happens over the film is there's sort of a changing of the guard. Like a couple of the older women who've been organizing ovarian psychos since its inception have to sort of move on they have like children to raise and like they're not that young punk idealist um phase in their life anymore uh so they have to like kind of inspire these like younger kids to like take over so it doesn't just fall apart as soon as they sort of age out of it um i I thought it was really good really like encouraging infectious atmosphere uh that sort of like strength through solidarity aspect was really really cool um, and then I went and saw White Girl in Chalmette, uh, directed by Elizabeth Wood. This was the low point of the festival for me. I was kind of tired of driving back and forth to Chalmette every day. I did not get on this movie's wavelength at all. Um, it's this indie film about two white college students who moved to a neighborhood in New York where they're the minority. Um, they make fast friends and lovers out of these um, drug dealers with a heart of gold that like work the corner in front of their house and sort of use their feminine wiles to lure these kids out of their small potatoes drug dealing into these like larger white circles um, where they're selling way too much cocaine and the whole world just sort of like falls in on itself after that. Um, it's... It's so just grossly done. It's like a hedonistic thing where you're supposed to both indulge in like the sex and drugs and rock and roll lifestyle of the film and sort of like take pleasure in that but also the movie's about how that's a downfall and I'm just these indie narratives where people do that stuff is just so gross at this point like it's it's just cliche and it, it also tried to like villainize these girls for basically treating uh, these POC neighborhoods as a playground where they get away cons- consequence free because of white privilege which is a sort of admirable goal in general, but the way they do it, it, it's like they're kind of shaming these girls for being young and sexy and like luring these men into like committing crimes and getting themselves arrested and killed and everything else. So I don't know, it was just like kind of a compromised kind of tone. It, it reminded me a lot of kids, where like everything was just so two dimensional and just kind of nasty and all for shock value without any real like character beats. Um, it might have meant something more if the kids that were exploited were more than just like a drug dealer with a heart of gold cliche. They're they're just like two dimensional screenplay devices. Um, so yeah, it was like the low point of the festival for me. I couldn't um, couldn't really get behind it. It was the only one that I I kind of wish I had stayed home instead. But we did end the festival on a high note. The next day, we saw Cheerleader at Canal Place, and this was the closing night of the festival. Um, This is a sort of fantasy piece um, directed by Irving Franco. I'm going to try to describe it a little bit. It's 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 kind of like Bring It On if that was like slowed down a half speed and like turned into like a surrealist art piece. 
uh, very darkly funny and uh, satirical of like high school cliques and um, the way that kids have a f- sort of fake hubris where they're like they're hiding their uh, anxieties about who they are by this uh, by just pretending to be super confident and like banding together. Um, and at, at some point, w- the main girl uh, finds what like true emotion feels like and what it is to connect with a different person, and it doesn't sort of fall in with the way that her like click culture allows her to express herself in a public forum uh, and she has to sort of like sacrifice true emotion for social standing um, what did you think of cheerleader um I really liked it I thought it was a really beautiful portrayal of one girl's inner life I did not necessarily agree with Brandon's description of it uh, <laughs> because I did think it was a very individual personal story uh, about like how you have to negotiate your identity in a group um and i thought it was very much an individual story and not so much a story about the group and the clique but yeah i thought it was really beautifully shot and really beautifully acted um i really enjoyed the protagonist Uh, i enjoyed the inconsistencies in how she told us things were happening and how like we actually saw things playing out on the screen i thought that was really interesting and beautiful um because like those are the narratives you tell yourself about yourself uh, and I thought that was all like handled in a really interesting and beautiful way. Yeah, she she has these um, several sort of romantic relationships throughout the film, and the way that she tells us what they are and what we see is a, is in direct conflict. And at first, it's kind of played for humor, but it gets like genuinely sad as the movie goes on. And I I I, I was really surprised by how much emotion there is in this film considering like how darkly funny it starts off as yeah and also like we're expected to see this character as extremely vapid and then we find that she has actually this really rich inner life uh and she goes through all this emotional turmoil like despite you know giving us this veneer of like i am a cheerleader everything's good everything's happy all the time forever (laughs) i thought the production design was really beautiful oh gorgeous production design her bedroom is one of the great like movie bedrooms I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it's the Memphis style, uh, Memphis collective uh, style where her wallpaper is entirely done in the black and white notebook grid with like random primary color shapes interspersed like throughout it. Uh, and then she has like this large like neon light mirror that she uses to do her makeup at. Like it's gorgeous the way the way the room's done. And there's also these sort of like weird freakouts where the screen is sort of overtaken by these like almost Max Headroom kind of screensaver images. Yeah, one of the one of the characters is really into computer science. Uh, his name's Buttons, and he's they never really explain what he's doing with computers. He seems to be doing a lot with computers, but I think that's more like his character. He likes computers, but he's creating just all of these screensaver type images. But for what purpose? I don't know. Like he's just, <laughs> that's just what he's doing. Uh, and so yeah like those take over the screen and then sometimes there's these shots where it looks almost like tree roots or lightning that just kind of take over this the the frames in a like really colorful weird kind of psychedelic manner uh, and there's not a lot of explanation as to why it does that uh, it kind of matches her like inner conflict yeah but not in any concrete kind yeah, of way they never overtly like tell you why uh, they make those decisions uh, 
I, I just really miss that like 90s like 10 things I hate about you bring it on clueless that kind of comedy and this takes that same aesthetic and turns it into something new and strange in a yeah. really interesting way yeah yeah if you if you had those films like you took the veneer of those films and you like combine it with like a really beautifully shot slow moving art film like you'd get cheerleader yeah and uh finally about um, about an hour ago a month after the festival uh, we had missed the restoration of Daughters of the Dust from 1991, directed by Julie Dash. They had a uh, Q&A with the director. Um, this is the first uh, theatrically released film in America that was directed by a black woman, which is just mind-blowing that that happened in 1991. 1991. It was so late. And the uh, copy we rented from the library was from Kino DVD distributor. It is not a well done transfer of the movie like it hasn't been treated well since it's theatrical release no it's kind of difficult to hear the dialogue uh it's a little grainy but it's such a like visually poetic movie that i really wish we had caught the the visual the um the digital restoration that was that played at the festival i mean to be fair we would have missed cheerleader and also they were presenting julie dash with one of the two awards that they give out every year so she was getting like a lifetime achievement award and it was like the closing big event of the entire show so the chance of us even getting a seat in that theater was extremely low. Yeah. So I don't really mind that we like sacrificed that uh, because especially like as she's getting more uh, fame and press because um, Lemonade by Beyonce, which came out uh, this this past year, uh, borrows very heavily visually from Daughters of the Dust, uh, and they acknowledge that. Um, like it's very obvious that they're borrowing like visuals from that movie. Uh, hopefully, this new restoration will be put on dvd and we will get access to it later um i definitely want to watch it with the subtitles on is there subtitles the whole the whole film is shot uh, on the Gullah islands off the coast of south carolina uh where a lot of escaped slaves uh made a community uh both before and after the civil war and the whole film uh the, the characters are mostly conversing in this uh Gullah creole so it's not accessible really to us uh, linguistically uh, because this is an old dialect that people don't really use and it's not a dialect either of us really grew up hearing because um, again it is a dialect that no one uses really anymore it is it is dying out some people still speak Gullah but it is a very small community of people so it was a little like hearing a foreign language but it's like a foreign language we almost know like like kind of like the way sometimes in dreams like you can almost understand what the characters, what the people in your dreams are saying, but not quite. And I felt like sometimes the language would go into that realm, um, which also made it really poetic to me. Like, I didn't always know what everybody was talking about all the time, but I got the general gist of it. And the visuals of the film were so beautiful and haunting that it did feel very dreamlike to me in a way uh, that I didn't really mind not understanding them. Uh, I didn't necessarily need the subtitles to be translations of what they were saying, but just to put it, like, on screen like verbatim that probably would have helped a little bit uh, again not just because I didn't understand them but also because the the transfer was so poor that you know the wind in the background would sometimes overtake their speech yeah and, I think it was an audio quality problem as yeah. well so. but also the the, the uh, visual narrative of the movie is not as concrete as a lot of films are anyway no it's not it so, is an art film it's yeah. definitely an art film 
Uh, and there's just something, um, I mean, the basic story is, like, a push and pull between, like, old world and new world. Um, some, some people in the colony want to go to the mainland America and become a part of, like, modern 1900s society. And the other mind is that they should maintain their culture. And there's, yeah. like, sort of like a tug of war between those like, two ideologies. White Americans slaved them. What did they owe to white America? Why would they want to go to the mainland and become part of that, like... They will they will go back to being black, you know, if they're in white society. Like if they go to America, they can just stay on their island and continue like being themselves. And there is no segregation on this island. There is no degradation of their culture or their spirits. But then again, they're also being left behind. Like some of them feel like they're being left behind. Uh, that they're gonna just become ghosts. I didn't really need much more of, like, a narrative structure than that. I, I thought that was, like, a good backdrop for the visual um, play. Yeah. Only a couple times was I not on board with the visual stuff. That She does the stuff with the frame rate that kind of feels like a cam, like a camcorder. Like, when you press, like, slow motion on a camcorder, um, that didn't age well. I'm sure it looked really cool in 1991, but it just doesn't, like, age well. But other than that, uh, the movie's just very gorgeous and there's just just the visions of the island are really beautiful there's like these giant trees and like horses galloping and they're uh processing indigo so it's all this like purple smoke and like purple water and uh they're like dying clothes in the indigo uh so there's just really like specific imagery to that you don't see <laughs> yeah ever. um yeah, no, like, I, I think that the restoration, it's going to be interesting to see, because I want to see, like, how much more brilliant the colors are, because this was a very muted 90s palette that I feel like a lot of films in the late 80s, early 90s had as they were transitioning away from, like, true film to, like, video, and this kind of has that, like, muted video color palette, um, which is kind of sad, like, you, you don't have the beautiful, like, 1960s, like, technicolor, like, film, like, color palette, uh, and I feel like this film like, really does deserve that, um, I would also say this is also one of the great food films. Mm -hmm. Like, this whole film centers on the night before everybody leaves. So it's it's the day before and everybody who has already gone to the mainland comes back for one last, like, feast on the island. So when they finally sit down to it, there's just, like, these plates of beautiful uh, Atlantic, like, shrimp and crabs and... Uh, like corn and okra gumbo. Yeah, there's some, the gumbo is very meticulous. They keep talking about the yeah, gumbo, like and you have to do it a certain way. Like, yeah, like you see them cutting up the, the the okra for the gumbo, and like corn on the cob, and grains, and boiled eggs, and like just about everything you can think of that is amazing about food here in the South. Uh, kind of all kind of coming together in this really beautiful feast. Yeah, yeah, I was very hungry watching the the, the, uh, the feast unfold. Um, it was also just like refreshing, like kind of like with Moonlight, to see a film with like no white roles. Yeah, no, it was beautiful. <laughs> just this like isolated community, like having like this narrative unfold just within their own ranks, which is really cool because it's just an outsider's perspective I don't really get in cinema very often, or not often enough anyway. Um, so that is a lot. I'm sure that was exhausting to hear because it was exhausting to watch it all in a row. <laughs> Um, did you have any, like, standout favorites? I I'd say probably Multiple Maniacs was my favorite movie I saw all festival. But as far as, like, newer stuff that might not get wide distribution, what what, what really stands out to you? 
I mean, I feel like people are going to be talking about The Handmaiden all year. I I would be somewhat surprised if that's not nominated for Best Foreign Feature uh, at the Oscars this year. I really love Cheerleader. I hope it gets a wide release. Um, I know it was actually made in 2015, uh, and we were just seeing it this year in 2016. Um, I hope to see. I hope to see my first kiss and the people involved in Are We Not Cats. Those would both be really cool. Yeah, those are my top three. I don't, I don't know if I have like a specific favorite out of the three. Maybe, maybe Are We Not Cats? Just because I really do like that horror, body horror area it was working in, and the fact that it turned into like the sweet romance was kind of cool for me, even though it was tongue in cheek, like you said earlier. And yeah, Cheerleader is just such a beautiful sort of abstraction of like movies we already love. Yeah, and as great as The Handmaiden is, I don't feel like it really like needs us to like advertise it. Like, <laughs> people who are going to go see it are going to go see it, because that movie is amazing. And it does have, I would say, my favorite trailer of all time. Like, And they unfortunately don't use the piece of music in the trailer in the film, which I feel like was a definite failing of the film, but just great trailer. If nothing else, just go watch the trailer to The Handmaiden. <laughs> Yeah, and The Handmaiden, uh, Moonlight played at the festival, but we saw it after the fact. Girl Asleep was supposed to play at the festival, we saw it after the fact. Mm -hmm. Um, The only things I feel like we might have missed out on were um, Manchester by the Sea and this movie Contemporary Color, which had like, was like a David Byrne performance. Yeah, Yeah, David Byrne did this performance involving color guards. Like, all these different color guards. With, like, tune yards and, like, some other, like, musical contributions. It sounded really cool, but we didn't get to catch that. And um, this other movie, Hari Kari, uh, which was, um, I I think, like, a queer romance about these two skateboarding punks the night that they know they're going to die. I'm not sure about it other than that, but that was, like, maybe the one thing, like, a smaller film I wish I had seen instead. And and that's spelled H-A-R-I-K-I-R-I, so maybe that's something that's worth keeping an eye out for. But uh, other than that, that's about all we can stand talking about at this point. I'm <laughs> very tired of talking about this film fest. I'm kind of I'm kind of ready to put it at rest. Maybe next year we won't watch quite as much uh, there, so we won't wear ourselves out quite as thin. Um, this weekend I will be tabling four swamp flicks at the New Orleans Comics and Zines Festival at the library. Um, come hang out, come see some zines. There's a bunch of great people doing all kinds of great stuff and. Not a lot of it has to do with movies. So if you just want movie scenes, come see me. Mm-hmm.